0: It's a little faithful crew here this morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, Why don't we stand, and we'll just jump right into worship this morning. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. Yeah. She- Psalm two, and um, the theme of Psalm two is that the Messiah and, the, and, and Yahweh, these two together, rule over the whole world, and all of the uh, the leaders of the world conspire against uh, Yahweh and His Messiah. But they're they're guaranteed to win. Messiah is guaranteed to win. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 52, the Old Testament reading in Isaiah 52. There's a word in here that pops up twice. Uh, It's uh, it's translated good news here in verse 7. Uh, actually, it's twice in, in in verse seven. So, uh, you guys, I don't think any of you, except for maybe my family, was here last night. We talked about. Oh, Nick was. We talked about that word, "good news." That word, "good news," is actually a very, very political word. It's not a religious word. The word "gospel" is. It's, it's about who's in charge. Here, it's Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah foresees a day when Babylon and all the fake rulers in the world are going to be deposed. And there's going to be one true king again, and that king will be Yahweh. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Hebrews uh, 1, 1, through 1-12 is the epistle reading. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. Like a robe you'll roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gospel according to St. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So in the, the lectionary that all the churches use, you know. The, so uh, if you've if you paid attention, we don't always uh, go with the lectionary, but we frequently do, and if you've been around a church that uses the lectionary long enough, you'll know that it changes from year to year. There are different readings that it focuses on each year. But on Christmas Day, every year, the lectionary always goes to John 1. It's the, it's the reading every year. And for good reason, there's just t- tons of good stuff about Christmas in here. I mean, it's not a Christmas story, of course, like Luke 2 or Matthew 1 is. But there's a lot of stuff in here about the Incarnation and... Um, how it fixes what's wrong with the world. There's a lot of description of what's broken. There's darkness, uh, there's death, there's lack of communication. And the word, the life, the light comes into the world to fix that. So it's good, good Christmas stuff every year. And it, you could honestly, uh, you know, read it. Well, you could read it every day and it's still not plummets death, depths, but it is a great Christmas text. And I, I do like taking all those themes in mind, I do want to focus just on one verse this morning, just for a few minutes, the last verse in there. No one's ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this verse kind of, the verse echoes back to verse 1, where the word becomes flesh. The word is with God, just like uh, Jesus here in verse 18 is in the Father's side, at the Father's side, uh, literally in the bosom of the Father, it says there in Greek. Uh, But it also kind of encapsulates the whole themes, which is there's something wrong, and it gets fixed. The incarnation fixes what's wrong. So just, just we're going to stick just with this verse this morning real quickly and think for a few minutes about the problem that the verse poses and then the solution and then the payout, the result. So the problem is, is that no one's ever seen God, right? That's the first line, no one has ever seen God. Uh, you can't see God, uh, and that makes it hard to believe in God because he's unseeable. Uh, no one has ever seen God. And there's something about us that, that struggles with that. You know, it's easier for us to believe the things that we can see. It's more difficult for us to believe the things that we can't see. This is a universal human problem. Here in the Gospel of John, uh, some of you will remember that uh, Thomas doesn't see Jesus the first time he's risen from the dead. And when his friends tell him Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas says to them, unless I see, unless I see it, I can't believe it, unless I see the nail prints in his side. Like, it's hard to believe things that you don't see. Especially for you guys, though, for us. We live in a world where philosophical materialism is the way that almost all of us think. Even as Christians, it's kind of our default mode on this side of the Enlightenment. The notion that the only real things that exist are the things that you can sense. The things that can be verifiable with the human senses. Um, the, the, we all think like this. The, the, there's a famous quote. Actually, there's a bunch of different versions of this, which you, probably, you guys have probably heard this before. Uh, Yuri Gagarin, the first Russian cosmonaut in space uh, came back and and there's different versions of his what he said but the most poetic one is uh, the earth was blue but there was no God. That's the most poetic version of what he said. You know I went into outer space and I didn't see God. It's beautiful the earth was blue uh, but there was no God. I couldn't see God. And of course that's that's philosophical materialism right? If you can't see it or hear it or taste it or examine it with a microscope or a telescope. If it's not accessible to our senses, to our bodies, then it's not real. Well, this is, I mean, the Bible recognizes this. Nobody's ever seen God. The Bible adds another element, too, which is it's it's difficult to believe in a God that you can't see, but even if you could see God, it would be bad news for you. It would blow you up. Moses is kind of a background character. In John 1, 1 through 18, I don't know if you guys caught this, but there's the bit in there about um, the word became flesh, and it says dwelt among us, but the word it uses there is tabernacle. It talks about Moses' tabernacle. Verse 17, the, word right, the verse right before the last one, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, Moses wanted to see God. Moses asked God, can I see you? And God said, No. God wasn't being mean. He explains to him in Exodus 33 that if, like, you saw me, you would disintegrate. If you could see me, you would blow up. If God exists, that's the kind of thing we would expect. If there is a God who exists, we would expect him to be so magnificently different than us that contact with him would be life-altering at minimum, maybe even destructive. Isaiah experiences the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this dream, it's a vision, it's not even real, he's not even really there, but he has this vision where he sees God lifted up high and exalted on his throne. He doesn't actually even see in his dream, he doesn't actually see God, he sees the hem of his clothes. The hem of his garment fills the temple. And Isaiah panics, and he says, woe is me, which is, I know it sounds religious, but it's it's uh, uh, old. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom for like, uh, dang it, I'm in big trouble. Woe is me, for I'm undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, but I've seen the King, the Lord of glory. Isaiah experiences the same thing. If you get in close contact with God, it's destructive. And so so, so, we're literally damned if we do, damned if we don't. We, you can't see God, but even if you could see God, it would destroy you. We're kind of in a tight spot. You know, it's hard to believe in the God that you can't see, but who tells you you can't see me, not just because you're unable to see me, but because you're morally non, you're morally ill-equipped to see me. This is the spot that we're in. This is what the fall has done to us, is that we can't see God's face, so we're lost. If we see God's face, we're lost. The solution that God comes up with is to become human. The answer here is that Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. So I grew up in the kind of church where we uh, use the King James Version. And so I memorized this verse when I was a little kid. And in the King James Version, so the King James Version is about, hold on a quick math in my head, about 400 years old now, a little bit more than 400 years old. And when the King James Version was translated, they had had a, a set of Greek manuscripts, which honestly weren't very old, that they were working with. And the Greek manuscripts they had said something along these lines. Nobody has ever seen God the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? that? Sounds like good theology. It is, but but uh, look down at verse eighteen again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote to you the King James version, and you can point out to me what the difference is. Nobody's ever seen God. The only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Do you see the difference there? The only Son, it says in the King James version. Well, in the past four hundred years, archaeologists have found manuscripts. Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that are way, way older than the ones that the King James translators used. And what all those Greek manuscripts say is this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father, or the ESV translates it, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. See the difference there? It's a, you can understand too why a scribe at some point would like say that, I don't, that doesn't sound right, the only God, nobody's ever seen God, the only God, It's just kind of clunky, right? It makes more sense if if nobody's ever seen God. But the Son has made him known. That makes sense, and it's true. But it's actually much, much stronger in the original, and the ESV captures that. No one's ever seen God, but the only God who is in the Father's side has made him known. Whoever this character is who's in the Father's side is not the Father, and yet is also God, is also, and like I said, this takes us back to verse 1, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Godhead, there's this multiplicity of personality. There's an ebb and flow. There's a give and take within the Godhead itself. And, of course, you guys know this. Here you are at a Christian church on uh, Christmas morning, that this is Jesus, right? And when it says here, no one's ever seen God, the only God, the one and only God, is literally what it says in Greek, who is in the bosom of the Father, it's not just a technical phrase here. It's not just like, okay, hey, there's God is more than one person. It's not just technical. What it's saying here when it describes Jesus as the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father is deeply affectionate. That 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 that, that language in the bosom of the Father or in the bosom of again, that's a that's a Greek or it's it's actually maybe a Hebrew idiom. Uh, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. It's in the Old Testament. It's sort of along the lines of sitting on the lap of, like really like really close to somebody. Um, in John 13, just a few chapters later, uh, Jesus is going to be eating a meal. And when they ate meals in the Greco-Roman world, they didn't sit down at chairs. Some of you know this. They laid down on couches. The couches were all oriented towards a table in the middle, and you would lay down on the couch with your feet away from the table and your shoulders towards the table, and you would lean in to pick up food and put it in your mouth. Well, what that meant though, is that the people that you would be eating with, you'd be laying, basically laying on a bed with them while you were eating, It's deeply intimate. We would never do that in this world, in our culture. But John 13 describes the disciple whom Jesus loved laying in the bosom of Jesus while they ate, like laying super close to him. It's a sign of intimacy and affection. Whoever this second character is, you guys know him as Jesus, is someone whom the Father has deep love and affection for. It's someone whom the Father has committed himself to. Someone whom if you knew this person, you would know the Father. You guys have had this experience, have you not? Do you have friends who are so close that you sort of mind meld? Do you have friends that are so close that maybe it's a significant other, maybe it's just a family member that you're super close to, that if I didn't know them, your friend, but I wanted to, I could come to you and I could say, hey, what are they like? And I would trust that you would be giving me a faithful explanation and representation of them. In fact, it would be much more deeper than that. The closer, the, the closer you were, the more connected, my connection with them would be via your connection. And that's what's going on here. God is not offering up himself for our consumption by sending us a letter or by giving us information, or by saying, here's my legal representative. All of that's true. We have a Bible. God does re- Jesus does represent God the Father, but it's much more intimate that, that he's actually sending someone he deeply cares about, who's intimately connected with him, who knows him deeply. And when we know him, we have a connection to the other. When we know the Son, we have a connection with the Father, which brings us to the result. Jesus is God, of course, but the result is that Jesus makes God known. That's the last line. The only, uh, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Uh, that phrase, made him known, is, doesn't actually use the word know in there, interestingly enough. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of Greek this morning. I apologize about that. It's actually the word exegete. Jesus has exegeted God. Exegete is kind of a fancy word that pastors use sometimes to, to mean really, really explain what a text means. That guy exegeted the text. That's the word here. And it gets used, it gets used in, in the New Testament a little bit. I'll give you a couple of examples. And then we'll, I'm going to give you three examples, two from the New Testament, one from the Jewish Apocrypha. And then we'll kind of put them together and talk about what does this mean that Jesus has made the Father known based upon these examples and what this word means. So in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, uh, an angel comes to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, to tell him, hey, I got a solution for you. There's a guy named Peter who can connect you to God. You need to uh, 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 invite Peter to come to your house. Cornelius has this vision. And when the vision is over, he calls a couple of his servants to him. And it says in Acts 10, verse 8, And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So that word related everything is the word for exegete, the same word that we have here in John 1:18. So he basically tells him the whole story. He relates everything to him. the word says. He tells him the whole story, and then he says, go get Peter and bring him here. One more example, very similar. Paul, um, Paul goes in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. In Acts 21, Paul takes a trip to Jerusalem to explain to James and the other apostles there what God has been doing on his missionary journeys. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he greets them, Acts 21, 19, and he relates one by one. He relates one by one. He exegetes the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So to relate one by one, to explain in detail is what he's saying here. One more example, and this one, has to do about, this one has to do with God, knowing God, and the impossibility of exegeting God. You just can't know, you can't even see God, let alone get him, understand him. And in the Jewish Apocrypha, there's a book uh, called Ben Sirach, uh, which it's not included in our Bibles, uh, but Jews in the first century would read this book. And in in, in chapter 43 of Ben Sirach, the author of Ben Sirach is contemplating the unknowability of God. And he says this, glorify the Lord and exalt him as much as you can, for he surpasses even that, he surpasses our praise. When you exalt him, summon all your strength and do not grow weary, for you cannot praise him enough. Who has seen him and can exegete him? Nobody's seen God, Ben Sirach says. Nobody's seen him, nobody can exegete him. You can't see God, you can't explain God. That's a fact. Except for, because of Christmas, now we can. John 1.18, nobody's seen God, nobody's exegeted him. But the only God who's in the bosom of the Father has come from him and now exegetes him to us. Now, what does that mean, exegete? Just based upon the examples. Three things we can see here. First of all, it's telling a story. Cornelius tells his servants a story. Paul, when he shows up at Jerusalem, tells James a story. Here's everything Here's everything that, that, that's happened. Telling a story. Not not just giving lists of information, but telling a story. Second thing, he tells it completely. Paul, for instance, explicitly says he relates one by one. He exhaustively tells the story. He gives every detail of the story that's important. And then last, exegeting is telling a story in order to pull someone into the story. Telling somebody the story in order that they can agree with the story, in order that they can participate in the story, in order that they can deeply understand the story so that they can be a partner in that story with you. So when John 1.18 says that Jesus exegetes God, what it's saying is that Jesus comes from God to tell God's story, actually be an active member of God's story, to tell his story completely. What do you want to know about God? Everything there is to know about God, the only access we have to that is through Jesus. Jesus is going to make this explicit later on in the Gospel of John when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. The son reveals everything he has from the father. And then lastly, Jesus tells us the story of God. Jesus lives the story of God in order to pull us into the story as well. The reason why Jesus exegetes God to us, the reason why Jesus gives God to us is because he wants us to pull us in to this grand narrative that God is writing where there's this broken, messed up world that God is planning on fixing and making new again. Jesus exegetes that story to us. He exegetes the mission of God to us to pull us into it as well. Lots of times we have questions about God. You know, where is God at? I don't see God in my circumstances. Or I can't believe in God who would do X, Y, or Z. Or I can't believe in a God who I wouldn't see. Every single person wants to know God. Whether you don't feel like you want to know God right now, you might be angry at God. You might be apathetic. You might be agnostic or atheist. You might be a Christian who has significant doubts You might be a Christian who has, maybe at this moment, minimal doubts. You're certainly not a Christian who has zero doubts. We talked about that several weeks ago. That person doesn't exist, this side of glory. But wherever you're at, if you want God, go to Jesus. God gives himself to us in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what Christmas is about. All right, stand with me, and we'll pray, and then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. Father, you reign over all the earth. We lift up our voices this morning and sing for joy to you in celebration of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, preserve this delight among your people throughout this coming church year. Lord, in your mercy. Father, the great mystery of the incarnation was first believed and proclaimed by common women and men, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Give us confidence, Lord, to spread the word of our Savior's birth, his life, a kingdom proclamation, his mission, his death, and resurrection, that your Spirit may work the miracle of faith wherever he wants. Lord, in your mercy. The great love that laid your Son in a manger, Lord, also lays his flesh and blood before us in bread and wine. Would you give us grace to bow our hearts before him with all those in heaven and on earth who adore him? that we may receive his forgiveness and life with repentance and joy. Lord, in your mercy. In the birth of your Son, you've called people from all times and places into the body of Christ, his church. We give you thanks this morning for all the believers who've gone before us, especially who've been with us during Christmas's past and who are now uh, living with you. Give us a sure confidence in your promise of resurrection and eternal life. Bring us all together at last. With them into your presence at the full coming of your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. Hear us, O Lord, for the sake of your Son, the Word become flesh, the Savior of the nations, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. Always one God. Amen. Let's confess uh, our Christian faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. This is found in your bulletins. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Why don't we, if you're going to have a communion this morning, why don't we all come forward? We'll all fit around the rail. Now, may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people, Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son you and keep you lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace amen merry christmas